The Gist is brought to you by Texture, the mobile app that lets you tap directly into the world's most popular magazines anywhere using your phone or tablet. Dive deeper into Vogue, People, Esquire, Time, and hundreds more with interactive content for a richer reading experience. Right now, try Texture for free at texture.com gist. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, March 4th, 2016. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In last night's presidential debate... Audience member, I'm nine years old. In last night's presidential debate, Messieurs Rubio, Cruz, and to some extent Kasich, lambasted Donald Trump. He thinks the nuclear triad's a rock band from the 80s. He's hired illegal immigrants. He's a closet liberal, a scam artist. He's a threat to the party, the country, and the world. I mean, here's a guy with no true beliefs who will not back up his word with action. Then, at debate's end, all the candidates were asked, so will you vote for him? Rubio. I support Donald if he's a Republican nominee, and let me tell you why. Because the Democrats have two people left in the race. One of them is a socialist. Kasich. Yeah. Sometimes he makes it a little bit hard, but, uh, you know. Cruz, who said during the debate nominating Donald Trump would be a disaster, but will you support him, Senator Cruz? Yes, because I gave my word that I would. But remember, it's Donald Trump who puts politics over principle. Donald Trump is a guy who's all bluster and no conviction. This would work out well in history, right? George W. Bush. We will not tire. We will not falter. And we will not fail. But will you falter or fail? Yeah, I guess if it comes to that, that'd be fine. William Jennings Bryant. You shall not crucify mankind upon a cross of gold. But what about being crucified on a cross of gold? Ah, sure. I don't love it, but I could live with it. Winston Churchill. What is our aim? I can answer in one word. Victory. Victory at all costs. Victory in spite of all terror. Victory however long and hard the road may be. But what if you don't achieve victory? Ah, we'll get by. On the show today, Adam Davidson is here to make negative interest rates positively interesting. And in the spiel, oh, it's more Trump. But first, this extremely important thing that's going on in the world that doesn't quite compel you, but it should. Here's Adam. So even if we're not that sophisticated an investor, we we pretty much know how banks work, right? You need a loan? They'll loan you money? I want $1,000. Great. By next year, you'll be paying me back $1,050. On the other hand, you want to give them a deposit? Great. Next year, I'll give you $1,020. The difference between that is the bank's profit. But now some banks, national banks, the Bank of Sweden, for instance, is offering an interest rate such that if you give them $1,000, they will wind up giving you $995.50. This makes no sense to me, which is why we brought in Adam Davidson. He writes about finance for the New York Times Magazine. He is a consultant on The Big Short, and he's a founding editor of Planet Money. How you doing, Adam? Hey, Mike. Great to be here. So Sweden has an interest rate, or the Bank of Sweden, which is different from a, a, a bank that a regular person would go to to open an account in, and we'll get to that. Bank of Sweden has an interest rate, a base rate of negative 0.5%. Why would a bank do this? And we should say the U.S. Federal Reserve seems to be considering doing something yeah. similar, possibly. And the Bank of Japan did it in a surprise. So big is not just little banks, big banks in the world. Yes. So... A key thing to know is right now is 
the way the global economy is working, the way the U.S. and European economies are working, Japan's economy is working, we have zero precedent. We are so far out on the limb of unexpected, unimagined, crazy circumstances yep. that every model we have for how an economy functions, how to make it function better, has completely broken down. So the people, you know, there, there's arguments for and against negative interest rates. One of the arguments against it is it's a desperation move. It's totally experimental. That's definitely true. Yeah. This is a desperation <laughs> move, and it is totally experimental. We don't really know how this is going to work. And so, we're desperate. What's what's the desperate state of the world economy? Why are we desperate? We're desperate because we have profoundly slow growth, mm -hmm. much worse, of course, in Japan and Europe than in the U.S., but still quite bad. It's like 2% in the U.S., and that's better than those places. And it's better than those places. Yep. And we have very low inflation. We mm -hmm. want actually, like, you don't want runaway inflation. You don't want inflation in the double digits or certainly the triple digits yeah. or certainly the 50 digits yeah. as it was in Zimbabwe, Weimar. Yeah. yeah, in Zimbabwe or Weimar, Germany. But you do want inflation somewhere around 2% a year. You want this kind of force, a bias towards action. So let's just say you had $100, there was zero inflation and zero interest rates. So that $100 was going to be worth $100 in a year and in two years and in five years. We kind of want you wanting to do something with that money. We want there to be an incentive in the system mm -hmm. to, especially when unemployment is high, when growth is slow, we want banks and businesses and people to have a bias towards investing in a new idea, buying a new thing. Also, it's an indication that the economy is healthy and that employment is robust, that you'd have a little inflation. Right. Gives you a good sign. We have had a model in the world since World War II. It's called the Bretton Woods uh, system, created by John Maynard Keynes and some other people in Bretton Woods, New Hampshire. And it really was a a mathematical model of how an economy works. It was a bunch of institutions like the modern central banks, like floating exchange rates, also the World Bank, the IMF. Over the course of the Great Depression and the years after World War II, a bunch of smart people created a model of how the economy works. And that seemed to work pretty well mm -hmm. up until about 2007. And since then, our economy has not functioned the way that model works. And we don't, like the previous model, the model that that eliminated that existed in the 1800s and, and the first few decades of the 1900s was a model in which gold was the sort of- Standard. The standard. The yes. gold was the standard. For lots and lots of reasons, which we don't have to get into now, we know that's bonkers. We don't want to go back to that. But we don't know what to do. We don't know what to do. Because in our models, there's these like, you know, dials that people can mm -hmm. turn. And and the key dial or one of the key dials is what we call monetary policy. So shift the interest rate a little bit, the federal funds rate, the Bank of England's rate, the Bank of Sweden's rate, and the economy kind of pays attention. If it's going too fast, you raise it. If it's going too slow, you lower it. And that stopped working when we hit 0% interest. Right. And for years, for the last several years, every economist, including I'm not an economist, but I play one on the radio, like people mm -hmm. like me have said, well, interest rates are at zero. They can't go below zero. Yeah. And so 
eventually someone said, hey, why can't they go below zero? Maybe so the idea is, the idea is let me make this analogy with the levers. It's like a sailboat. Sometimes you bring in the sail, sometimes you bring it out, you tack. I'm using terms, but anyway, it's how to react to the wind. When there is no wind, that's all out the window. This is all good, these little things that you do in the sailboat. But when there's no wind, then you're maybe screwed. So, so, so maybe someone's saying... Uh, why can't we just start blowing? <laughs> right. Why can't we start blowing? Or why can't we have a giant vacuum that yeah, sucks Yeah, okay, what about us? a vacuum? Yeah, yeah. yeah, we'll take a vacuum. Right. Trying to get the interest rates up. That's what you're trying to do. And let me talk about what this is that we're taking below zero or above zero. So mm-hmm. every bank, every bank in America has money on deposit at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York. They have an actual account. Oh. You and I can't have an account at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York, but Bank of America does and Wells Fargo does. And every bank you've heard of, they have an account there. And by law, they have to have a certain amount of money on that account. And the Federal Reserve has been paying them a tiny bit of interest on that account. And what we want is the banks, like Bank of America or whatever, to lend more money. So someone comes and says, hey, I have this idea for a new factory or I want to buy a house and a big screen TV and a swimming pool. We want more people who come and say that to hear, yes, that's a good idea. We're going to give you that money. And so we want to make it a little painful to say no. And so the way you make it painful used to be you just lower the interest they reserve. So if if you have a thousand bucks and it's in the Federal Reserve account and you're getting, you know, one percent a year mm-hmm. and I come to you and say, hey, I want to borrow that money, but I'm really risky and I'm only willing to pay you two percent a year. You might say, nah, it's not worth it. I'd rather get yeah. the sure thing, get the my guaranteed 1% money, one percent. Yeah. So if now I say, OK, you're going to get negative five percent. I'm going to every day I'm going to take some money out of your account until you lend it to someone. Yeah. Suddenly the kind of risky guy is looking a little more attractive. And that's what Sweden's doing. That's what Japan is doing. They had kind of stagnant economies. Maybe they're a little different. Maybe Sweden has something to do with uh, foreign currency more than Japan did. But Japan's a pretty stagnant economy. They weren't loaning enough. They wanted they had the money in reserve. Let's get the money out there. Right. Yeah. yeah. Sweden, Switzerland have a different like when you're when you're the dollar yes. and you your currency is the global currency you don't have to worry about certain things when you're a fairly small economy yes. and and your currency is doing just way better than everyone else's suddenly it makes your exports really expensive to other people so so it's a different problem than the one we're having although not entirely i mean we also worry about that stuff so from my perspective I personally, like, I don't know what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I feel okay with them going to negative. I sort of basically buy the story that we're in new uncharted territory, but not doing anything is also new uncharted territory. Yeah. I think it is worth remembering a big part of the problem we're in right now is that we didn't do enough stimulus. We didn't do enough fiscal stimulus. The U.S. did a little bit, but not enough. Europe had these austerity measures. And that's really the price we are paying. We are living in a world where politicians misunderstanding or misrepresenting how debt and government liabilities work scared their population into not only accepting but demanding a bunch of austerity measures that have made us all yeah. much much worse off. So still popular in England. Weird. I don't think I don't think the uh, populace understands this at all. I don't think they do. Yes, I yes. will say I personally like I went into this crisis like yeah. a lot of sort of centrist economic thinkers thinking the whole idea that John Maynard Keynes, you know, generally thought of as like the father of kind of left of center economics, father of macroeconomics, 
ah, that's old stuff. We mm-hmm. don't care anymore. And, I, and I've spent the last eight years becoming more deeply impressed and devoted to his thinking, like many, many people. I would say, like, if you did a poll of economists or people who think about economics, my hunch would be if you did that poll in 2005 and asked, are you a Keynesian, you'd get, you know, 7, 8, 10%, and now you'd get 70% saying, yeah, I am a Keynesian. So, so I do like to point out the kind of idiotic policies that Donald Trump promotes, the kind of idiotic policies that... George Osborne in the UK has put through. The, He's the chancellor of the exchequer. He's yeah, there. the policies that Germany is imposing on Greece. These are terrible policies. These, yeah. the, these are good politics, terrible policies. And ideally, you would want the central bank and the government working together. And when one of them doesn't work at all, the other one can't pick up the slack. So that's why we're in this weird place. How are we to judge, hey, guess what? The negative interest rates are having their effect. Is it that we'll see inflation go up? Yeah, I mean, we'd want to see inflation go up. We'd want to see economic growth. We'd want to see increasing. And inflation's gone up in Sweden. Yeah. So there was an early sign just recently. Yeah. I mean, usually you expect central bank policy to take like a year and a half-ish to Mm -hmm. really know like, okay, yes, that's the thing. Milton Friedman had this famous quote, something like, central bank policy has a long and uncertain impact. It was a much more elegant quote than that, but it was basically like, we don't quite know how long it's going to take, and we don't quite know how big an impact it's going to have. So the sailboat analogy is almost right, except if you tack this way, and then you wait a year and a half and find (laughs) out if you're nudging a little (laughs) bit to the left. Well, the Fed just raised interest rates a tiny bit. Is that now seen as a mistake? What Janet Yellen basically spent all of 2015 doing is preparing us, like literally the us that is me and other financial reporters and then Wall Street and then the general public for the idea that please don't pay too much attention to any one thing we do. Please give us some wiggle room. We're figuring this thing out and we're going to make a bunch of moves slowly, methodically, thoughtfully. We're going to make a little move this way. We might make a little move the other way. I feel she successfully did that. I don't want to make it sound like I'm the greatest Janet Yellen fan in the world. I just think she's definitely solid. You do have a Janet Yellen tattoo on your left bicep. I got to say that. Yeah. Yeah. I think she has done the best she can do to tell us, okay, maybe we shouldn't have raised them. It's not that big a deal. We only raised them a little. Mm. Maybe we'll go negative. But we're not going to go like to negative 12. We're going to go like negative 25 basis points. Negative 0.25. And if that freaks people out then a few weeks later or even if it has to be a few days later we'll stop it like we're out on the thin ice but we're going to be walking very slowly we're going to touch the ice with our toes Mm -hmm. we're not going to just like run out to the middle of the lake well i will tell you this when the waters are uncharted my sextant my north star is adam davidson the founder of NPR's Planet Money. Thank and you. And surprisingly awesome with Adam McKay. The oh writer. my God, I haven't even mentioned the podcast Surprisingly Awesome with Adam McKay, who was the director of The Big Short. He's leveraged his Big Short to an amazingly awesome podcast. Thank you very much, Adam. Thank you, Mike. Texture. Wait, is this about fabric? It's about magazines. It's about all the magazines you read that you can't organize, that you don't know where the good 
articles are that maybe you'd like to read more magazines. Think of it like the Netflix for magazines, but more than Netflix, because Netflix doesn't go in and there's, there's no curation to it. You know, you hear about the series that you might want to check out. But Texture, which gives you access to hundreds of magazines, a subscription service, points out articles that you didn't even know you might like in the first place. The Texture app lets you tap into the world's most popular magazines anywhere, anytime. You can use a smartphone, you could use a tablet. There are hundreds of magazines there, and you pick the articles that interest you most. The best part, it's a free trial right now. When you go to texture.com slash gist, you'll gain immediate entry into all the top magazines, back issues, bonus video content. Try Texture for free right now when you go to texture.com slash gist. And now the spiel. Some arguments trump others. In the most recent Gallup poll, 63% said the media was biased. But if you break that down, 44% said it was too liberal and 19% said it was too conservative. So whereas two-thirds of Americans think there's a problem with the media, less than half of Americans can agree what the problem is. So does that mean that there's a problem with the media? I mean, at least 19% of the people saying that have to be wrong. It can't be both too liberal in general and too conservative in general. Let's say it's 72 degrees in an office building and there are three workers. Two of the workers say the temperature is off. It's uncomfortable. So I guess you would say, well, the temperature should change. But wait, one of them wants to raise the temperature to 77, another wants to lower it to 69. So there's not really consensus about how hot it is. Mama bear and papa bear can both be right about porridge or mattress firmness. I bring this up in relationship to Donald Trump. Over the last two days, we've been subject to a slew of critiques seeking to disqualify Trump. And since this disqualification has taken place with an audience of Republican primary voters in mind, the critiques have been pitched to the values of that audience. But it has the perverse effect of putting forth criticisms that to others, like, say, me and maybe you, point out Donald Trump's possible saving graces. For instance, in last night's debate, Marco Rubio said this about Trump. Example, to someone whose positions are not conservative, to someone who last week defended Planned Parenthood for 30 seconds on a debate stage. But to me, and indeed to a majority of Americans poll show, a defense of Planned Parenthood, especially the women's health services they provide, is a good thing. Beyond the policy stance, it's even something of a rare thing to voice in a Republican primary. It shows bravery. It does not fit the narrative of Trump changing his stances to fit the circumstance. It speaks to a candidate who would be uniquely moderate on abortion issues among the candidates in the Republican field. Later in the debate, Ted Cruz said this. If you don't like Obamacare, Donald Trump funded Harry Reid and Nancy Pelosi taking over Congress to pass Obamacare. But here's the problem. I do like Obamacare. So maybe it's the case that Donald Trump is pro-Obamacare, which I think of as the right stance on the issue. Now, you could argue that he at least now says that Obamacare is terrible and that he has a pretty thin plan to replace it. So what does that mean? I guess that means that he's far less bad on Obamacare than all his rivals. I understand why a Republican wouldn't ken to this debate. But if you took Cruz at his word that Trump's terrible on Obamacare, in my mind, it makes me think, all right, of all the Republicans up there, he's the least likely to slice it with a surgical precision. Surgery paid for by an HMO, I guess. And as far as the gang of eight issues, 
I like a path to citizenship. I don't call it amnesty. I call it a path to citizenship. So he was saying that Donald Trump actually supports my views. Because remember, in the popular imagination, his endorsement of the wall is the worst thing about him. It's the most symbolically egregious thing. So there, Ted Cruz is counteracting what to most people is the most disqualifying thing about Donald Trump. Hey, maybe he doesn't believe any of this. But if that's true... And you were to rank Donald Trump along with Hillary Clinton and Republican nominee to be named later, then Donald Trump should never be the worst of that bunch. You've got the fairly liberal Clinton. You've got the very conservative Cruz B.O. Trump, we don't know exactly what he thinks, but he's got to be somewhere in the middle. Now, ideological categorization, it's not the only reason to favor a candidate. The candidate's ideas, the candidate's judgment, the candidate's knowledge, the candidate's temperament do have weight. And those things absolutely hurt Trump. But it seems like questioning his credentials as a dyed-in-the-wool conservative or a closet liberal is limited in its usefulness as a disqualifier. Let's take Mitt Romney. Gave a really good speech about Trump and Trump's temperament. In fact, I would say it rivaled Bill Clinton's speech at the DNC in terms of a systematic dismantling of an obviously flawed set of beliefs. But still, Romney did have a couple of lines that didn't resonate with me and those of my persuasion, to wit. His tax plan in combination with his refusal to reform entitlements and to honestly address spending, would balloon the deficit and the national debt. Now, I'll note the in combination with his refusal to reform entitlements part. Let's just look at his tax plan. Trump's tax plan would cut federal revenue by $9.5 trillion over a decade, according to the Tax Foundation. Ted Cruz's plan, though, would blow a hole in the deficit of $8.6 trillion, and Rubio's would be $6.8 trillion. What I'm saying is if it weren't for Trump's plan, Cruz's plan would be the most radical, the most wrongheaded. Romney also said, Donald Trump says he admires Vladimir Putin. At the same time, he's called George W. Bush a liar. That is a twisted example of evil trumping good. Actually, it's an example of evil triumphing incompetence. But in truth, Romney's critique was mostly spot on. Trump isn't a bad idea because he's a conservative. He's a bad idea because he's a deeply dishonest politician who has shown fascistic tendencies. I recently reread Umberto Eco's 1995 essay on fascism. Donald Trump embodies the late Italian author's description. Quote, fascism was a fuzzy totalitarianism, a collage of different philosophies and political ideas, a beehive of contradiction. It's all there. Echo lays out 14 traits of fascists. It seems to me that Trump has nine or 10 of the traits. The traits include action for action's sake, fear of difference, appeal to a frustrated middle class, a class suffering from an economic crisis or feelings of political humiliation. Fascism, as Echo lays out, is a philosophically weak ideology championed by individuals trying to evince strength. And that, in a nutshell, is Donald Trump. That's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi, GIST producer, is like something you'd find on Zillow. Executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Lichtai, used to manage a Buffalo Wild Wings. You've got to hand it to Panoply Chief Content Officer Andy Bowers, but because of his tiny, tiny fingers, he might drop it. The GIST. We got a D from the Better Business Bureau, so we are building a terrific, better, better business bureau, and we're getting the Mexicans to pay for it. Um, peru, de peru, du peru, and thanks for listening. Thank you.